Welcome to the Darrell McLean Show. I'm your host, Darrell McLean, and let's get into our episode. Is fully listener supported independent media that won't lead you to tribalism. You can get a membership for as little as three dollars a month at www.patreon.com slash the Darrell McLean Show. We talk about a lot of serious topics on this show. One very serious topic is women's health. One company that stood out to me was vslay.com because the owner is very transparent about her own struggles in the women's health department and has great customer service, great deals, and frequent sales. You can check her out, her great customer service, products about women's health, and frequent sales at www.vslay.com. That is www.vslay.com. Welcome to the Darrell McLean Show. I'm your host, Darrell McLean. Today is 8-22-2023. So Tuesday, August the 22nd, you are listening to episode 363 And let's get into our episode. For all intent and purposes, there seems to be a fight for the soul of what it means to be a Christian. What is Christianity? And in fact, who is Jesus Christ? This fight has been exasperated or intensified when it came to the election of Donald Trump and the splitting of what we now call the evangelical community. This hit somebody who had been a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention for most of his life, who also had to leave or step down from that very post over his views of what he saw as white nationalism creeping into Christianity, or nationalism, I should say, creeping into Christianity, and the rise of evangelicals loving somebody he saw as a non-Christian, uh, Donald John Trump. For years, Russell Moore was one of the top officials in the Southern Baptist Convention. Then Donald Trump came on the scene. Moore criticized him publicly and found himself ostracized by many other evangelical leaders who embraced Trump. Then Moore criticized the Southern Baptist Convention's response to a sexual abuse crisis 
as well as what he viewed as an increased tolerance for white nationalism within the church. And suddenly, Moore found himself resigning from his post and on the outside of a denomination that had up until that point defined his life. My personal faith has become stronger, and I know that's surprising to many people given the uh, given some of the awful things uh, that I've seen. But I've also seen some remarkable signs of life and signs of grace as well. Moore's new book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America, is an attempt at finding a path forward for the religion he loves. When we talked this week, Moore told me why he thinks Christianity is in crisis today in America. Well, it was the result of having uh, multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount, parenthetically, uh, in their preaching. Turn the other cheek. Uh, to have someone come up after and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me is that in, in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, uh, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. Now, that is startling to me as a Reformed uh, preacher, a Reformed Christian, Reformed Baptist, or as I, as I see myself uh, following under, because we believe in something that we call sola scriptura, so scripture alone. So to have somebody who professes themselves to be a Christian, to hear the words of Jesus himself, you know, Christian means to be Christ-like, and to say that is no longer valid for this time is a startling. My next question would be, if, if I ever heard that, would say, then in what way, if you have a critique of the actual Christ, are you in the faith? And it, it, when, when we get to the point where the, the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. I mean, how do you even begin to fix that problem, though, when the central message of the gospel is something that a lot of people in the church do not seem to want to fully embrace? I don't think we fix it by fighting a war for the soul of evangelicalism. I really don't think we can fix it at the movement level. And uh, that's that's one of the reasons why when I'm talking to Christians who are concerned about this, my my counsel is always small and local. I think we have to do something different and show a different way. And, and I see in history every time that something uh, renewing and reviving has happened, it's happened that way. It's happened at a small level with people simply uh, refusing to go with the stream of the church culture at the time. And I think that's where we need to be now. How much is politics part of the problem here? Are there, are there big issues that have led to these problems that aren't politics, because I think the politics and the culture war aspects of it certainly take up the most attention and certainly play out the most in public. I think that the, the roots of the political uh, problem really come down to disconnection, loneliness, sense of uh, alienation, uh, even in, in churches that are still healthy and functioning. Uh, the regular church going is not what it was a generation ago, uh, in which the entire structure of the week was defined by the community. And I think there's a great deal of, uh, a great deal of fear that comes from that. 
And then when you look around at legitimate uh, concerns often that, that Christians have about the society around them, but when that's packaged in terms of existential threat, uh, which I don't think is unique to the church right now. I, I think that, that almost every sector of American life uh, is is seeing this with what um, Amanda Ripley calls conflict entrepreneurs, people who are willing to come in and say everything is about to be lost and desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah. That is something that you hear all the time now in, into society. You just can have disagreements about public policy. Everything is an existential threat. The person who is disagreeing with you is not just your fellow countrymen who is disagreeing on something like tax policy, which is basically math and redistribution of of how our distribution of how the resources that the government takes from you through taxes should be spent. No, the person is an enemy who needs to be defeated. You hear that more and more and more, more and more, I should say, in the language of unfortunately too many americans and this is also because christians do not live in a vacuum this has also ensnared the church as a matter of fact there are a lot of religious people who fundamentally believe that your religious beliefs have to be directly tied to your political affiliations i'm going to let this uh, continue and i'm going to discuss this more on the other side to that end, a lot in this book is about what is going wrong. And I wanted to ask you about somebody that you see as, as the right direction. And I noticed that you repeatedly throughout the book return to C.S. Lewis as somebody who has been very important in your own life, very important in personal crises of faith that you faced. And, and one of the things that you mention right away is his welcome and encouraging tone yeah. in his writing. What was it about his words that helped you so much? I think what helped me as a 15-year-old, as a I was looking around at Bible Belt uh, Christianity and wondering, is this all really just politics uh, or social control or something else, some means to an end? And because I had read the Chronicles of Narnia so many times as a young child, I recognized Lewis's name and on the spine of the book and was able to read it. What struck me was the fact that he very clearly wasn't trying to market to me or to mobilize me for anything. He was simply bearing witness to what he had uh, seen and what he knew to be true. And I, I really think that often in, in the history of the church, the people who can do that are people who seem to come out of nowhere. Uh, Lewis was an atheist uh, literature professor, very antagonistic to Christianity until he became a Christian. We've seen that so often. So I, I often tell people when they ask, well, who's the next Billy Graham? Uh, the next Billy Graham may not even be a Christian yet and, and might, as a matter of fact, be a person very hostile to Christianity. We've seen that before. I think you, you refer to, to your personal situation as almost accidental exile at, a, at, at points in, in the book. Yeah. Are you glad that happened? I, I am not someone who uh, thinks of myself as a dissenter, and yeah. I, I don't like the role of dissenter. I, I like uh, belonging. I love my community. Um, and, and so it's a very unnatural uh, sense of, of exile for me. But one of the things I've noticed is that since since I've gone through that, I've talked to thousands of people who have experienced a very similar thing. They, they feel homeless. Uh, they feel as though there's not 
one particular niche into which they uh, fit in all of these warring tribes in American life right now. And again, I think that can be a good thing. That's not just an evangelical problem, though, right? No. I feel like cultural tribalism and political us versus them over everything else is is a defining part of American life right now. Mm-hmm. Do you think, and there's a lot to talk about when it comes to that, but do you think there's any hope for the changes you want to see in the evangelical church if this all-or-nothing political cultural warfare moment continues across the country beyond its community? Well, I don't think the all-or-nothing cultural warfare is sustainable. Uh, I, I, I think really, a lot of people agree with you on that, and yet here we are. Yeah, we, we are here, but, but I really do think that it's not sustainable in terms of um, – there's a, a passage in the scripture that says, uh, beware if you uh, bite and scratch at one another that you do not devour one another. And I think in American life right now, we're starting to realize we're, we're devouring one another. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Every, almost every part of American life is uh, tribalized and, and factionalized, but it shouldn't be that way in the church. The, the very existence of the church is to mean a group of people who are reconciled uh, to God and to each other. And, and from the very beginning, uh, was standing apart from those sorts of uh, those sorts of factions, and so I think I think if we're going to get past the blood and soil sorts of uh, nationalism or uh, all of the other uh, kinds of uh, kinds of totalizing cultural identities, it's it's going to require rethinking what the church is, and I don't think that's something new. I think it's very old. I think it's recovering a a first century. Uh, understanding of what it means to be the church. Russell Moore, his new book is Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. Thank you. So I'm going to get that book because this was not the first time that Russell Moore raised um, some concerns. As you heard me say before, he actually had to leave the Southern Baptist Convention for some of the uh, things that they were not addressing. He was actually uh, one of the premier leaders in that organization he was the on the on the head of i think the ethics board it was and did not like the way that they tried to sweep under the rug what we now know is about 900 allegations uh, proven of sexual abuse uh and they were some uh, sadly doing the same things that we know the catholic church does which is just transfer person from church to church and parish to parish and they do have no no regard whatsoever for the victims that they are going to leave in the wake. Now when it comes to the scriptures and what it says about this, I don't want us to be shocked by this because it actually says very clear in 1 Timothy 4, 3. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. But they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. So let me say that again. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to wholesome sound teaching. But they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Now I want us to think about that and not just the theological realm. 
I want us to think about it in the everyday body politics. I want us to think about it in the in the people that we know who only listen to one station who tells them exactly what they want to hear. I want you to think about the people who religiously just listen to ABC or religiously just hip and listen to CSNBC, who religiously just listen to Fox News. And that is the only opinion that they listen to. And everybody else, by the very nature, is anathema. And I want us to think about that when we think about this verse cited thousands of years ago in Timothy, Second uh, Timothy 4, 3. People having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. As I said earlier, more is no stranger to uh, Christendom. There was a article way back from June 7th of 2021, and it was published because he had written an extraordinary letter in February 24th of Russell Moore, then was one of the most influential and respected evangelicals in America. And he wrote a letter because he was also the president of the Ethics and Religious and Liberty Commission, the policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the actual largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Now, the letter was sent to the ERLC's Board of Trustees and it offered a devastating indictment of the denomination's executive committee. And it, it was very, very big deal when he did it. And he is also, to this day, still the head of the popular magazine that people read all the time, Christianity Today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It goes without saying that this show does not happen without listener support. Support the Jerome McLean Show by going to www.patreon.com and getting a membership for $3. Or you can go to buzzsprouts.com slash the Jerome McLean Show and hit the subscribe button and join there. Many ways to donate to the show. Independent media that won't reinforce tribalism. We have one planet. Nobody is leaving. So let us reason together. www.patreon.com slash the Jerome McLean Show or go to Buzzsprouts and to the Jerome McLean Show and subscribe. I'm Sarah Bedford and I'm here today with magazine editor David Mark. And David, Donald Trump has been indicted for the fourth time, this time in Georgia. Georgia is obviously a really significant 2024 state. So what are the implications of a trial potentially playing out while potentially Trump and Biden are competing in Georgia? Right. All the Trump indictments are big news. You have the two federal cases, the hush money case in New York. But in Georgia, it's in a state that's actually up for grabs in the 2024 election. And it's effectively local news for residents there. So they're going to be right, reading about the ins and outs of the trial motions before the judges, all the logistical moves that will get national coverage. But it will be right front and center in Georgia, which President Biden only won by a little under famously under 12,000 votes over former President Trump. And it could go either way in 2024. 
If you had to give grades, let's give some grades out for how some of Trump's rivals have been maneuvering around the indictments so far. Who gets an A? Who gets an F? You know, how, how are the candidates doing in sort of navigating this? Well, I'm in the camp of Chris Christie at least is offering an alternative. You might like him, you might not, but at least he's saying something different, like Trump should not be president. He's criticizing him forthrightly. The other candidates, so just on tactical purposes, not agreeing or disagreeing with them, I'd give them an A or so. Mm-hmm. The other candidates, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, some of the others, give them like a C or so, <laughs> just because they're not distinguishing themselves. They're trying to get that piece of the Trump base, but they're not really willing to criticize him. One person I'd get, probably give a pretty high grade, maybe an A- minus would be former Vice President Mike Pence, mm-hmm. who for whatever reasons is coming out now and talking up his role on January 6th when he did the right thing he didn't certify the false electors. It took him a while to get there, but maybe it's out of he wants to make his market history. He knows he's not going to win. Or maybe he actually thinks it's a good strategy. Whatever the reason, he's actually coming in and touting it. And you wrote a piece about how one strategy potentially for Republican candidates should be to or could be potentially to pitch themselves as a second option to be best positioned to to take Trump's place if the legal, you know, the strain of these trials force him to drop out of the race. Tell us about that. Right. This would be a case, you might say, on steroids of saying the quiet part out loud <laughs> of just saying, look, Trump is facing all these trials. He might get convicted. He might have to drop out, whatever, something else could happen. And hey, if you don't like him, I'm right here for you. It's not really uh, the kind of case you would make, say, if you were in the dating pool or someplace <laughs> else, saying, hey, I'm good enough, I'm second place. But it might be the most honest way of getting it, and voters might appreciate it. Is anybody sort of positioning themselves to, to be that person? It's interesting. In a way, they all are, to, other than like Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, and Will Hurd, who were over are overly critical of mm-hmm. him. But the other candidates we've discussed, they don't say it this way, but they're effectively Ron DeSantis and whatnot saying, hey, something might happen to it. I'm the most MAGA-ass, most Trump-like guy, second in line. Well, David, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. You can get more reporting from David and the rest of the political team at WashingtonExaminer.com. So I have to admit to something that I actually don't like to do normally, but... And is is a way to be honest and open about what happened. I have to admit something. I was actually wrong about something. I have predicted that Donald Trump would actually be in the GOP debates. I said that there was no way he would be skipping the debates. I actually said because he loves attention so much, there is no way that he would allow other people to be on that debate stage when he is not getting attention. So what Donald Trump did is kind of did two things at one time. So it's a partial, I was wrong. So Donald Trump will not be on the debate stage. He is going to be skipping the Fox News GOP debate, but he is going to be on TV with Tucker Carlson. It will not be live, and it is actually pre-taped. So Trump rebukes Fox News by skipping the GOP debate. Former President Trump's decision to sit out this week's Republican primary debate is his sharpest rebuke yet of Fox News, the network broadcasting the widely anticipated primetime television event. Trump is the front runner for his party's nomination, has agreed 
is to, to participate in the online interview with Tucker Carlson by sitting down with a firebrand conservative commentator whom Fox News pulled off his air earlier this year. He doubles spurns the network. The high-profile snubbing underscores the increasingly frosty relationship among the former president and the leading cable news channel and a top-ranking commentator who is trying to maintain his status as the GOP's thought leader ahead of the 2024 election without the Fox News platform he used for years to grow his brand. In the social media post last Sunday, Trump confirmed he does not plan to participate in Wednesday's event or any GOP debate, citing his large lead in most primary polls. Quote, the public knows who I am and what a successful presidency I had. The former president wrote it to his of his decision, which had been rumored for weeks prior. The former president's confirmation of his intention to skip the debate came just days after a New York Times report revealed that Trump agreed to instead sit with Carlson for an interview and made your nod to one of his favorite media figures that is also widely regarded as an effort to host the former network. As an affront to the host of the former network. So anyway, this is ridiculous to me, personally, because um, Tucker Carlson was ousted by Fox News and he sparked a bipartisan backlash because he was ousted from his primetime perch days after it agreed to pay Dominion Voting System $787 million to settle defamation claims it made against the network in court. The claims were in connection with the outlets airing false statements about voter fraud being pushed after the 2020 election by Trump and his allies. In months before he was ousted by Fox, Carlson sparked a bipartisan backlash for his commentary on January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters, which came as the former president refused to concede defeat, calling the event in one broadcast mostly peaceful chaos. Carlson, who is actually still under contract with the network, has not spoken publicly about what led to his uh, ouster, but pundits, allies, and supporters have agreed that his firings amongst and it amounts to an attempt by Fox News to suppress his anti-establishment viewpoints, a political sentiment shared by many of Trump supporters underscoring the complexity of Trump's uh, and Tucker Carlson's Fox dynamic is a trove of internal communications from top Fox hosts, which were made public earlier this year as a part of the Dominion litigation. It included communications from Carlson showing him blasting Trump and throwing cold water on his assertions about voter fraud. In one thing, Tucker actually says, I hate him passionately. Carson wrote this in one message later, expressing his exasperation about claims of voter fraud being put forth by the president's lawyers and aides on the airways. Other messages from Carlson showed the host disparaging female leadership at Fox and using racially divisive language while describing his feelings watching the violence that broke out during the January 6th attack. 
Since being ousted, Carlson has started an online version of his popular primetime uh, TV show on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. And while he has published a number of interviews with controversial internet influences, pop culture figures, and political candidates, since Carlson does not command the same type of audiences as he did with the nightly while on Fox. Now, so that's about it, as I can say about that. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump is going to try to snub Fox News by going to sit down with Tucker Carlson. Tucker is trying to do the same thing, snubbing Fox News by pulling uh, Donald Trump out of the debate. Uh, who wins this is going to be up for question. Uh, one person that spoke about this said that Donald Trump is not going to go because he is scared of him. And that is the former Republican governor. Chris Christie, who says Donald Trump is going to bring it right now ahead of a town hall in Miami, Republican presidential candidate, former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie. Governor, thank you for being with us. Is Donald Trump scared of you? Apparently, yes. Uh, that's all we can conclude. He apparently is very scared of me because it doesn't look like he's going to show up on Wednesday. And I, I, I don't think, given the memo I read, he's scared of Ron DeSantis. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, Donald Trump, it's always about, as you and, I, you and I have known him for a very long time, he's always about the show of strength. He's always, you know, very, uh, you know, play, you know, does the macho thing. A lot of, a lot of symbolism, just talking about how strong and vital and powerful he is. Uh, and yet again, I, I find it, sorry, I can't imagine this as a politician. He's scared to show up on stage and debate you. And I do think, and a lot of other people agree, I do think it's specifically about you. He saw what you did to Marco Rubio in 2016, and I guess he thinks you can do it to him. Well, Joe, look, uh, it, you know, if what he were saying were true, which is he's got this great record as president, um, and that he's so far ahead, why wouldn't you come onto the stage and take a victory lap and just lap everybody else on the stage? And and you're right, he does, you know, this is a guy who plays macho man at rallies, you know. Uh, only people uh, our age, Joe, understand even what that song is, let alone right. what, it, what what he thinks it means to him, right? So, you know, all I could say is this. I, I If he believes he should be the nominee, if he believes that he's got such a great record. If he believes he's the best person to go against Joe Biden, then show up on Wednesday night and stop being such a coward. Yeah, um, yeah, he, he plays macho man, you're right. He always has, but there's so much overcompensating, but again, afraid to even show up to debate. I'm wondering, uh, Governor, um, Ron DeSantis' memo, uh, the memo from the Super PAC said that he needed to go after Vivac the fake. Um, a lot of emphasis on Vivac, um, who, from what I've seen, uh, is, uh, is up to his neck. A very, really talented guy. I've talked to him on the phone early in the campaign. But it seems that he trots out one conspiracy theory after another conspiracy theory. I'll be honest with you, for somebody young and talented, I don't understand why he's doing that. Can you help me understand better why he seems to be interested in, in trotting out all of these conspiracy theories and even asked uh, whether Neil Armstrong landed and walked on the moon? He said, well, I have no evidence to suggest he did not. So... Uh, for now, yes. 
Yeah, no, look, I can't explain it, to tell you the truth. I really can't. And maybe he'll explain it to us um, on Wednesday night. But I think that the, the bigger question is, Joe, if you're if you're Ron DeSantis and you've um, been the, the leading contender uh, for months and months and months now, um, why that's what you're focused on um, and why is your strategy to defend Donald Trump? I mean, look, Joe, the guy's going to be, by the time we get on the stage Wednesday, it's possible that Trump could be out on bail in four different jurisdictions, New York, Florida, uh, you know, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. I mean, I don't think that's a calling card for a strong front runner for President of the United States to be out on bail. If, I mean, what should the first question be for Brett Baer? Could you review for the voters your uh, restriction releases, what you can and can't do <laughs> while being released from custody? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, and, and, and yet we're, you know, we got DeSantis focusing on Vivek and and um, and saying he wants to defend that. I don't want to defend that, Joe. I want to be on that stage to say to the voters in the Republican Party, let's stop normalizing this conduct. This is not normal. And whether you believe that these prosecutions are fair or unfair, strip that away for a second. It, is this conduct the kind of conduct, because he doesn't deny the conduct. Is this conduct the kind of conduct you want for a president of the United States? And I don't think it is. Governor Christie, this is Jen Sack. I wanted to ask you to put your legal hat on here, which I know you do on a regular basis, because Trump's lawyers have requested now to move the date of the trial, or one of the trials, I should say, until 2026. And they've made the argument in a very creative way that they need years to go through discovery and all these documents. What do you think of their proposed timeline? And tell us a little bit more about how that process typically works and, and how much time they actually you actually think they might need. Well, Jen, I'm actually surprised that they didn't ask for a trial date six months after his death certificate was signed. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, I got to tell you the truth. I don't get it. You don't need that much time um, at all. And, and the fact is that um, I think that this judge will probably settle in on some time the summer of 2024. I think if you give them anywhere from 10 months to 12 months, that that is more than enough time to get ready for a single defendant case. Now, granted, there are lots of documents, but that's the nature of today's criminal practice. There are always going to be lots of documents with the existence of email and text messages and WhatsApp and all of the rest of that stuff. So there will be a lot of paper. But the fact is, you also have tools like uh, electronic searching through these documents that you never had before. And it's not like they're sitting there and rustling through, you know, 10 rooms full of paper. Um, it's all electronic and then get through it. So I, I think realistic. I don't think a January trial date was ever realistic in this. I think that probably is too tight. But I would think anywhere from like, you know, April to, to July, somewhere in that frame, uh, time frame would be fair um, to the defendant. And also remember, the public has an interest in a speedy trial also, Jen. Their, uh, their desire is to get this thing resolved, and the public has a right to have answers in this case as well. So that speedy trial right runs both ways. Governor uh, John Heilman is with us. With a slight delay, he has a question for you. John. Sure. Hey, uh, Governor, um, I, I want to, as long as we're going we're to talk about the law here and, and, and not strictly about politics, I want to I frame this question for you in a slightly different way on these cases that, that the former president is facing, which is, 
You know, you uh, have some experience as a prosecutor, as everyone knows, uh, and are someone who I think uh, a lot of people would say uh, knows your way around cases of this kind, not just in terms of how they play out, but in terms of their relative strength. We now know the president's been indicted in these four different cases. If you had to run one of them, if you had to be in charge as a prosecutor of one of them, the strongest case, the case you thought you could most obviously win, which one would it be? It would be the classified documents case, John. Um, for two reasons, because it is extraordinarily clear law um, that you're not allowed to take classified documents out of the White House after your president. Um, and secondly, um, the obstruction is so clear. You can you can you know prove the obstruction of justice through the notes of his own lawyer. Uh, so and video from his own surveillance cameras. Um, that's pretty good stuff. And then lastly, on that case, you have a video tape or an audio tape, rather, of him showing classified documents to people who are not cleared to do it. So when you those three things, that's the case um, that if I were going to look at the four and pick which one I wanted to try personally, give me that classified documents case. And I say one other thing, John, I wouldn't have even charged the documents. Um, I would have just charged the obstruction. And then you would have had all this stuff about who's going to get cleared to see classified documents and how you're going to clear the jury and all the rest of it. This is such a clear obstruction of justice case that that would have been sufficient. And that's a case that they probably could have tried, you know, late this winter um, if they had charged it just that way. And I think Jack Smith made a strategic error in charging all that he did. But factually and legally, it is still the strongest case. So, look, that was the uh, former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. There's a lot more to that interview, but I decided to cut it off from there. And we will get into the candidates that have the most to gain from Trump's access uh, or absence from the debate. And we're going to start off with uh, Vizek uh, Ramaswamy. The national name ID has steadily risen since he jumped into the Republican primary in February. Once considered a lower-tier candidate, the entrepreneur has drawn more attention from donors in recent weeks. The latest uh, Real Clear Politics polling average shows that Ramaswamy is in third place, trailing Governor, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis by roughly eight points. And his opponents and their allies have taken note. Last week, pro-DeSantis Super PAC never backed down, called on DeSantis in a leaked memo to attack Ramaswamy, dubbing him Vake the fake or Vivek the fake the Monday a former UN ambassador Nikki Haley campaign criticized Reese's comments calling to reduce the USA to Israel in the future Ramaswamy could face the biggest national audience in his career so far Wednesday aims uh, amid signs that he is gaining traction in the primary and if the telegraph from uh, Haley and DeSantis allies at any indication he will be one of the prime targets for attack on the stage, depending on how Ramaswamy handles the incoming fire. This could elevate his stock in the few and further going into the second debate. Chris Christie as well. Obviously, the former New Jersey governor and a 2016 presidential candidate will likely feel right at home on Wednesday's debate. Says Christie is a formidable debater and famously showed off his skill in 2016 when he ripped it to Senator Mark Rubio on a New Hampshire stage and what was seen as a massive blow to the former Republican campaign. Trump's campaign took note of Christie's talent on the debate stage and actually recruited him to act and stand in for Trump's opponents at time in debate prep. Christie has made no secret of the fact that he is running to take down Trump and often invokes his experience working 
for the former president and helping him to bait prep on the campaign trail. And before Trump, uh, Trump took up or shook up the political ecosystem in 2015, Christie was seen as one of the more bombastic rising GOP stars. Chris Christie's confrontational style, coupled with his knowledge of working with the field's runaway frontrunner, make him a candidate to watch in the debate Wednesday night. Quote, I think Chris Christie is going to be the guy to watch. He's the most killed debate debater. He's coming after Trump, DeSantis, and Ramasalmi. He's going to be entertaining former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, Republican said on Sunday on CNN. And like Ramaswamy Christie was mentioned multiple times in the leaked memo from Never Back Down, the group called with DeSantis to use Christie's likely attacks on Trump's opportunity to defend the former president, a dynamic that could lead to flare-ups between the two governors. And of course, that leads us to Ron DeSantis. The stakes are perhaps the highest for DeSantis going into the first debate last year, the Florida government was seen as young rising Republican star who could take on Trump in a interparty contest. But since jumping into the GOP primary and made DeSantis has remained stagnant in second place while Trump's lead has only grown. DeSantis arguably would be number one target on stage with uh, without Trump's presence. The former president has launched a barrage of nonstop attacks against DeSantis, whom he has his team has dubbed DeSantis. With Trump on stage, or without Trump on stage, DeSantis will be the prime target for other candidates eyeing his second place status. The leaked memo from Never Back Down highlighted other candidates for the governor to look out for, including Ramaswamy, Christie, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. But there's also a possibility for that DeSantis' opponents could end up elevating the Florida governor by focusing their fire on him for the majority of the night. And depending on how DeSantis handles the attack, his campaign could get a much needed boost now while tim scott the republican from south carolina he has not at this point in time at least tim scott has not had this seen any type of surge in the polling uh like uh ramaswamy has seen many high dollar donors have actually expressed interest in tim scott's campaign now, the senator has long been known as one of the most well-liked figures in the GOP and has run a largely positive campaign. So Scott could actually use his happy warrior persona to stand up on the debate stage of other candidates taking negative tone and attack each other. Scott will also be the only black candidate on stage, highlighting a demographic that the GOP has long struggled to gain attraction with. Now, the senator could use his, this as an opportunity to highlight his perspective on race and cultural issues that have divided the country. This was notably on display last month when Scott traded barbs with DeSantis over Florida's new standards on teaching black history, which included language that students be taught that enslaved people develop skills that benefited them under the American slavery system. If the subject brought up on the debate stage, it would mark the first time Scott DeSantis debated this issue face to face. Now, Nikki Haley is one as well. Haley is arguably one of the most qualified candidates on the debate stage, having served as South Carolina state legislator as governor and then in the Trump administration as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Like many other candidates in the field, she has long been seen as a rising star in the Republican Party. And yet, though she has a successful campaign launch early this year, 
Haley has struggled to gain attraction in the polls. Now, Wednesday's debate presents a major opportunity for Haley to get out in front of a large national audience and tout her experience on domestic and international issues. However, Haley will also have the opportunity to stand out as the only woman of color on stage. Her perspective as a woman could play well with not only Republican women, but also voters of color outside of the Republican ecosystem. Do I happen to be a woman? Yes. Do I happen to be Indian? Yes. Do I happen to have a military spouse? Yes. Do I happen to be a mom? Yes. All those things are great, Haley told Politico last week. I think that when I become the first female president, it won't be because I'm a woman. It will be because I'm the right person for the job. Now, in other little news, or not little news, I shouldn't say it that way, the Georgia bail bondsman is the first surrender in the 2020 election case, the first of 18 co-defendants alongside former President Trump in the Georgia case over his efforts to subvert state election results has it rendered Sir Fulton County Jail. Records show that early this morning. Also, on yesterday, so Monday, a judge signed off on a $200,000 bond for the former President Trump. In his Georgia election case, according to court filings, the order forbids Trump from intimidating any co-defendants or witnesses as the case as he awaits trial. In that same group, Eastman, so the attorney, John Eastman, one of the former President Trump's 18 co-defendants as well, and his recent Georgia indictment has agreed to a $100,000 bond, the court filing showed for his case. Oh, you know, obviously their case. They're all co-defendants. Rich man north of Richmond. So Oliver Anthony's breakout viral hit, Rich Man North of Richmond debuts at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 Songs chart, among other charts achievements for the singer-songwriter. He is actually the first artist to ever launch atop the list with no prior history in any form. The song has drawn both praise from the right and opposition from the left, with the lyrics referencing your tax dollars to no end, causes of a rich man north of rich man, as well as the obsessed or the obese milking welfare, stated Anthony in a video posted August 7th. I sit pretty dead center down the aisle in politics, always have. Now, let's look at both sides of this argument. Now, from the left, the left is critical of the song, arguing that it casts blame on the wrong people. Don't be fooled by the title. Most of uh, the most vividly drawn villains in Rich Mitch Men North of Richmond aren't rich. Lord, we got folks in the street ain't got nothing to eat and the obese milk and welfare. Anthony Yoles in the second verse in the next con in the next complete. He completes the picture. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, tax ought to not pay for your bags of fugs rounds. It's a poignant, a potent image, one that draws on the welfare queen stereotypes that oozed to life in the 1970s. Now that comes from John Levine from Slate Magazine. Don't let the rage of the populace become so focused on the capitalist is the number one rule of capitalism perpetuating of itself. The story that the ruling class and the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan and all his forebears have told generation after generation of regular ass people like Oliver Anthony is the villain is the government. Look, north of Richmond, that skinny, that shiny city 
populated by elites where they make taxes, where they take your money and give it to fat people so they can buy fudge rounds. The government is the problem. They're the target for your rage. That came from Hamilton Nolan of Substack. Or Nolan. Every Democrat in Congress voted for legislation that ensured permanent funding for Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, which pays out $149 million in benefits for minors suffering from Black Lung Disease. Joe Biden's America Rescue Plan, meanwhile, provided $200 million in new funding for Mine Safety and Health Administration. Finally, $4 billion of Inflation Reduction Act Cleans Energy Funding is reserved exclusively for projects in communities with closed coal mines and retired coal power plants. Dot, dot, dot. Americans who are selling their souls for bullshit pay deserve politics that prioritize their interests over those of the wealthy. Building this sort of politics requires working people to form solidaric bonds across divisions of race, employment status, and to resent concentrated economic power more than government authority. Right-wing possibilism exists to prevent them from doing just that. That comes from Eric Lidzett of New York Magazine. Now, when it comes to what the conservatives say, or from the right, I should say, the right praises the song, arguing that it speaks for the neglected working class. This song, Real, appeals lies and the ability of the voice to sense among the white working class that are least cared about, the least cared about group of people in America. It is hard not to hear a ring of truth in Anthony's general sentiment. Not only do many Washington and New York seem unbothered by mounting difficulties of rural life, but quite a few have only derided the idea that rural Americans' problems are worth solving in the first place. There can be no doubt that the majority of nations' economic and power and political power is concentrated in the cities, nor do the problems that plague rural communities, opioids, lack of solid infrastructure, and joblessness get talked about in policy circles with the same frequency as the issues of the city, like LGBTQ rights, criminal justice reform, housing, etc. When I brought the, up the issue of joblessness in the countryside, my friends in the city often replied, well, people should just move. Cities and small towns each suffer from compl complicated problems that will almost certainly require widely divergent solutions. But I suspect if offered, if offered a reply that in response to the urban housing crisis, I'd be shouted out of the room. That comes from Jeffrey Tyler Sack of the Dispatch. Real wages for the bottom half of American workers have been stagnant for the better part of two generations. And Anthony has right to complain of the working all day for little reward since 1979. The dawn of the neoliberal era in American workers' productivity, productivity has jumped by 65% according to the Economic Policy Institute, while their hourly pay has grown, grown uh, crawled up 17%. That next comes from Sorab Amari American from the American Conservative. For anybody who feels like the world has spun off its axis, and that is American society, society right is often treated as wrong, and wrong is treated as right, the song strikes a chord. Very few country songs aim to lay out coherent plans for rebounding when life gets us down. They, they are about expressing the sadness, the regret, the frustration, and the sorrow of life's tragedy setbacks. It's okay not to offer solutions. That is from Jim Girity of the Washington Post. Now, when it comes to another perspective that I don't want to leave out, we're going to look at what the libertarian perspective is. The song lyrics pro-political themes as surely as Buffalo Springfield, for what it's worth, are the pulp's common people, are Kendrick Lamar's all right. So it's understandable that political magazines and commentators are talking about it so much. Still, 
I'm struck by how little coverage there is for a rich man north of Richmond as art. No, no song goes this viral without resonating with listeners on a, uh, on a, um, on a, on an artistic level as well as a, a aesthetic level. Nevertheless, even publications that rose to prominence based on the art of criticism are covering the song through the lens of politics. And uh, it's another one from the libertarian perspective, preemptively assigning figures such as Anthony to existing ideological or culture war factions is needlessly polarizing and can even be self-fulfilling. A malleable dictates much of its coverage to the possible that Anthony has some objectionable right wing's belief, whereas almost none, no one outside the most reactionary right wing websites cares when a leftist singer songwriter turns out to have some objectionable left wing beliefs. Because that's not why millions were attracted to the music. That comes from Connor Fredgerson of The Atlantic. Another one we have here. Anthony's tune bumped the similar earnest anti-urban Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldell from the top of the charts. If you add in Austin's moody, lefty-taunting uh, chart climber, I'm just saying, you have a cluster of songs grabbing the popularity with a sheer sense of populist outrage. Call it the return of the country's protest song. But music critics don't want to put uh, Aldine, Anthony, or Moody in the same tradition as Woody Guntry uh, because times have changed. Name brand media types overwhelmingly like today's elites. Establishment and the protest song come from a very different direction than, a, than Guntry's socialism. But not approving of a protest doesn't mean it's not a protest. Times have moved on, but the gap between rural and urban populists and elites remains. That's from J.D. Tuslin of reason magazine so um i actually have not heard the song i have uh read the lyrics and i i'm very interested in some of the the critiques that i heard mostly uh right up in the middle especially when it comes to the critique of somebody like uh Sarab amari from the american conservative who says real wages for the bottom half of American workers have been stagnant for the better part of a generation. Now, he sounds exactly like the left-wing socialist professor uh, Robert Reich, who he made the exact same argument from the left in Inequality for All, and he was lambasted by the right at the time uh, for wanting to dish, uh, redistribute wealth, or, uh, et cetera, et cetera, wanting to overregulate businesses and everything else. So apparently... This is a problem. That particular documentary, Inequality for All, in 2013, and when he broke down the numbers, most specifically about worker productivity going up almost some 200 or so percent, it was a ridiculous number, and wages being stagnant. And then he juxtaposed that to the pay raises and the skyrocketing bonuses and everything of the senior executives as well as the board of directors and the shareholders. And so I guess I can say that it took a few years, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 23 years for now the conservative people to look at the same thing that Robert Reich was saying in a country song because now populism is a new thing because everybody is realizing it actually may not be uh, what you think it is. It actually may be something else. But what I think 
the what 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 uh, misses the boat here, and I think that's the critique at least from the left. If I can, as far as I can ascertain it, is they believe that it is the same on the uh, mistake where instead of looking up at people who are fleecing you, you look to your neighbors who are maybe getting a government benefit. So my, th my, my critique is, is fairly simple. If you are paying heavy taxes, eventually you should be getting something in return. So don't look at the person who is on whatever benefit. You look at the government and say, where is mine? And that, and that is the real thing you have to do. You pay these taxes every year. You pay them on um, almost every good. You pay them when you buy a luxury item. You pay them at the end of the year. You pay them when you die. What are you getting for it? So if you believe taxation is theft and you have been paying taxes, you need to petition your government to do something you would like with the taxes. And maybe, just maybe, you need to ask your government to do what I said a few weeks ago on the show, to give the money to the people and let them make their own decisions. Very lucky to have a show question today. Show question, supposedly, uh, Rudy Giuliani supposedly said he will turn evidence on Trump if Trump doesn't pay his legal fees. Rudy Giuliani actually said this. This can he not be charged if he's asked but won't answer during the trial. He's basically saying, I know what he did illegally, but I won't tell you. So look, Rudy Giuliani is going to be under oath. He has obviously been indicted as well. But the thing is, they actually don't need Rudy Giuliani to say anything in this particular way they've set up this RICO statute. The way the retail statute actually works is if one person is guilty of the crime, they all are guilty in part. So they actually don't need Rudy to say anything. He can plead the fifth all day long. If anybody else in that co-defendant class is found guilty of doing something, they are all found guilty one and the same. So Rudy Giuliani, in theory, could plead the fifth, but... It really doesn't matter because the way it looks, somebody is has been telling, somebody has been giving information, and it looks like a lot of people are saying that maybe Mark Meadows. But that's uh, thank you for the question, and I do think because of the the nature of what Rudy Giuliani was asking for, which was twenty thousand dollars a day in legal fees for one time, I'm going to agree that Donald Trump should not have paid that when you look at the type of legal advice he was getting. I'm actually very happy he didn't pay Rudy Giuliani. I know a lot of good lawyers. I know a lot of them. I have never heard of any lawyer trying to charge any client $20,000 a day, especially for the bad advice that was being given to the president, former president, by Rudy Giuliani. Thank you for that question. Well, the show is coming to an end. Sadly, again today, we did not get a your corner from anybody. So I'm going to again pick a rant to end today's show. After the rant, we will see you on the next episode. You always told us. You told us when it's going to be time to panic. Well, is it time to panic? 
Well, let me just tell you, folks, it's never going to be time to panic because we're never going to give up. We're not going to give up on America. I'm not. I don't think most of you are either. And while we have that attitude of not giving up, we are constantly going to be searching, strategizing, coming up with ways to prevail. We've got the basics. We have, we have millions and millions of Americans that are fed up. Can't wait to do something about it. There will be a series of ideas that people come up with based on dealing with the fraud that we know we have to deal with. But America's worth it. America is worth fighting for. America's worth not giving up. And that's why I, I think whatever form it takes, we will continue to fight for and to defend and, and to triumph. I know the odds are, I mean, they're stiff and they're steep. The American left is made up of a lot of people that hate this country. Hate is a very, very destructive um, frame of mind. It's a very, very destructive characteristic. And eventually it results in implosion. Cannot, you cannot survive on hatred. You cannot sustain a movement based on it. We just need to be patient while being vigilant and continuing to fight for what we believe in, knowing full well that we can prevail. And while we may not have the golden goose idea right now for how to do it, there are countless people thinking about it, strategizing. We're not alone. You're not alone. You're not a singular individual all by yourself out there trying to fight these people by yourself. There are 74 million plus and growing. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Of course, if you want to support the show, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com and getting a membership for as little as $3 a month. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash The Darrell McLean Show. McLean Show is fully listener-supported, independent media that won't lead you to tribalism. Get a membership and support independent media at www.patreon.com slash The Jerome McLean Show.